Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter on as a guest on the show. He is he's obsessed with improving the quality of education. That was uh, somebody on Twitter uh, claiming that uh, <laughs> this, is, this is what his deal is. Uh, and he is a force to be reckoned with on social media. And if there's any guy you can model knowledge and rhetoric with the appropriate dose of sarcasm, it is Corey DeAngelis. He's the director of school choice at the Reason Foundation, and he's also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Corey, thanks for joining us. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me. So uh, many libertarians are very passionate about a lot of things. And some of us have sort of pet passions that, you know, like this is our thing to promote and defend. Um, libertarians can be known for, you know, like sound money or in the Fed or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and this particular topic, the topic of school choice, isn't unique to libertarians. It's, it's kind of across the board in a lot of ways. But why is this a passion for you? Well, our school system doesn't make any sense. The way that it's structured today, the way that we fund the school system today, doesn't make any sense when when you look at how we structure other areas of our life, other aspects of society, and how we fund even other government programs. If you look at food stamps, for example, the funding goes to families and families can pick from an array of different private providers of groceries. With schools, we have taxpayer funding of schools, but that money goes directly to the school regardless of how satisfied families are with the quality of the education being provided, the quality of the safety levels of those schools, and regardless of whether families voluntarily choose to send their kids to those schools or not. Um, So it's completely backwards. And then you can also look at other areas of education where it doesn't line up uh, with K through 12. If you look at pre-K programs, uh, a lot of people calling for pre-K programs don't support K through 12 vouchers, even though pre-K programs can be used at public or private providers of pre-K. Same thing with Pell Grants. Pell Grants are essentially vouchers at the higher education level, and they can be used at public or private universities. And with all these other types of programs, food stamps, education programs, we fund individuals and individuals are able to choose the provider of the service. It seems to be only in K through 12 where we structure it a little differently and where people are forced uh, by residential assignment to send their kids to schools that aren't working for them. Um, So, I mean, that's why it's a pet peeve for me. That's why it's an issue that I care a lot about because it doesn't make any sense. There's no reason for it to be this way. There's no reason we should be funding systems instead of students. The money should go to the students. It should go to the families. Uh, It should go to the people who care most about their children and the educational outcomes of their children. So again, there's no reason it should be like this. But then also I've had some experience with school choice myself growing up. I will say I did go to government-run schools all throughout my K-12 through experience. Um, so if I say anything incorrectly or my grammar doesn't sound right, it's probably because I was uh, <laughs> uh, I had to go to government-run schools for, for 13 years of my life uh, because I wasn't well off enough to be able to afford a private school or to be able to to go through homeschooling myself. But right. I actually got to go to a magnet school in high school. 
Uh, a magnet school is a school of choice, but it's still a government-run school. And what I mean by school of choice is that you aren't residentially assigned to magnet schools. You have to apply to get in. And so I had a very positive experience with my magnet school. The school that I was residentially assigned to had a lot of problems. Uh, there wasn't a lot of education going on there. And the magnet school I went to is actually physically located on the campus of the government-run uh, residentially assigned school that I was supposed to attend. And the difference was just night and day. Uh, I'd go walk through the halls. There'd be a lot of fights going on in that school. Uh, if you walked by the classrooms, it seemed like people weren't actually learning anything. And then on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, I saw that in my school, people actually cared about what was going on. The teachers actually cared about what was going on and people were actually getting an education. And so I think more of these options should be available to everybody, that everybody should be able to pick their schools. And whether that's a government school, a charter school, a private school, whether you want to homeschool your children, I think everybody should have these options. Um, and I, and I, myself, I wish I had more options just, than just magnet schools, but mm -hmm. at least I had that option. I, I think other yeah. people should, should have additional options as well. Yeah. Does, does this sort of follow along traditional ideological lines? I mean, is it, is it something that like, you know, Democrats are typically against school choice and Republicans and libertarians are typically for it? Mm -hmm. Or is there some, is, are there other metrics or standards that we can sort of pay attention to and say, oh, this is how they sort of align? Yeah. I mean, it's more recently, it's been, you know, the left has for a long time, uh, or just more, more recently has not favored school choice. That doesn't mean every single Democrat doesn't favor school choice. There's a lot of Democrats who do favor school choice, particularly charter schools. A lot of people who don't support private school choice might still support public charter schools, perhaps because charter schools are not allowed to be religious. They can't charge tuition. They have to accept all students at random. So there's a, a spectrum of different types of school choice supporters. But I will say conservatives tend to be more in favor of school choice. Uh, libertarians tend to be more in favor of school choice. But it shouldn't be a partisan issue. Just theoretically speaking, it should be a nonpartisan issue because school choice, it's more of a market reform in education. So you should see, and obviously why libertarians should be in favor of school choice and conservatives who tend to favor uh, market-oriented oriented reform should be in favor of school choice. But it's also an equalizer. You know, the rich people in society already have school choice. Rich people can already afford to buy a house that's residentially assigned to the highest quality government-run schools in the United States today. Rich people can already afford to pay out of pocket for a private school while still paying for the government-run school through property taxes. Rich people can figure out how to structure their work life to be able to uh, homeschool their children uh, without using the money that went to the government-run school. So in a sense... The school choice is an equalizer for society. And so yeah. every single, you know, it should, shouldn't be a partisan issue. Uh, and, and the less advantaged populations in society today tend to be residentially assigned to the worst government schools. So in that sense, also giving disadvantaged families more options uh, is an equalizer as well. You know, that whole like the rich always already have school choice. That is sort of the argument I go to first when I'm talking with people who are, are against school choice and they're all about, you know, adding more funding to public education. Um, and they don't seem to, like, that just seems like a no-brainer, slam-dunk sort of argument. Like, don't you want the least advantaged to have the same opportunities mm -hmm. as the kids that Bill, you know, Bill Gates' kids or whatever? And they're like, 
their typical argument is something along the lines of, but there's going to be children left behind. It doesn't work that way. We're not giving it to everybody or something. Like what? I don't know. I mean, does that seem really weird to you that that's not something that attracts them? Well, that's a, I mean, that's akin to arguing that, you know, if the Titanic is sinking, that we should not allow anybody to get on the lifeboats if only 99% of people are able to use those lifeboats. Mm. I mean, that's the argument uh, that's essentially being made. But if you look at the evidence, the kids who don't even exercise school choice, the kids who uh, are left behind or who remain in the government-run schools when school choice is introduced, actually tend to do better because of competitive pressures in the school system. That There's 27 rigorous studies on this that look at the effects of private school choice competition on the kids who remain in government-run schools. 25 of the 27 studies find statistically significant Uh, positive effects on the kids who remain in public schools. So in a sense, you don't even have to use school choice programs to benefit from those programs. And then also the government-run schools also tend to end up with more money when they lose students to school choice competition on a per-pupil basis. Because in the United States, although we fund education or fund government schools on a per-pupil basis based on enrollment counts, We don't completely fund schools based on enrollment counts. I think the percentage of funding that's driven by enrollment is around 60 to 80%, depending on the state that you're looking at. But what that means mathematically is that when a government-run school loses a student for whatever reason, to school choice or or if they move to another school district, that school district gets to keep 20 to 40% of the resources for a student who who is no longer there, Hmm. which they should be celebrating that, that fact that they're ending up uh, with more money. Um, and then also it's like reducing like, just their think overhead. about it from the food stamp perspective. Yeah, you, you lose the amount of customers and you're still getting your customers uh, money. It's, it's akin to having food stamps. And let's say I had food stamps and I used them at Walmart and then left to Trader Joe's. If Walmart got to keep 20% of my food stamps each week, they'd be super happy about that. They would be celebrating that fact. The, the reality is I should be able to take 100% of my food stamps to Trader Joe's or Whole Foods based on my decision. And Walmart shouldn't get to keep any of that money. But in the current system, without school choice, Walmart gets to keep 100% of my food stamps. I'm essentially residentially assigned to my nearest Walmart. And I have to spend 100% of my food stamps at Walmart regardless of whether I want to go to Trader Joe's or Whole Foods or another outlet. So it's completely backwards. And then again, with this argument about the kids who are left behind, although the evidence is overwhelmingly positive, we shouldn't need that evidence to justify being able to make our own Mm. uh, educational decisions. Same thing with food stamps. I shouldn't have to justify that Walmart shoppers are better off because of competitive pressures from me taking my money in the form of food stamps to shop at Trader Joe's or Whole Foods. That would be completely ridiculous if Walmart started saying that, well, our customers aren't going to be as, as well off because you're taking some of your food stamps elsewhere. With community college, if I, if I take my Pell Grant to the state university and I leave the community college, the community college could say, uh, well, you're making our students worse off and that, that you should be forced to stay at the community <laughs> college. That wouldn't make any sense. Everybody would think that would be ridiculous. That, it's, it's just a ridiculous argument to make. Yeah, yeah. Yet we have people making that argument over and over again. I shouldn't have to convince you. It is the government school's responsibility to get better. It's not my responsibility uh, for the government school to get better. Yeah. All I should have to know as a parent is that I'm going to choose the best school for my kid regardless of what happens in, in, in the government-run schools. 
you know, even though the theory is completely ridiculous that's thrown against school choice proponents that we need to somehow, you know, make the argument that the kids left behind are doing any better. I think that argument is ridiculous. But regardless of the fact that the theory is ridiculous, the empirical evidence also overwhelmingly shows that the kids who are left behind do much better um, because of competitive pressures, because the government-run schools know that they need to up their game if they don't want to lose customers, just how it works in any other industry. That competition tends to be a tide that lifts lifts all boats. I, I think anybody listening here would understand why people on Twitter have said that you're dangerous and you shouldn't be talked to. Um, because you you actually know the facts <laughs> and you actually know what the heck you're talking about. Um, and in fact, you know, you used that Titanic analogy a little bit earlier about you know, like 99% can't get on the boat because we don't have 100% mm-hmm. you know, capacity for those lifeboats. You know, right now we're recording this in 2020 while most of us, actually probably all of us are pretty much on lockdown uh, in our, our stay-at-home orders. I'm in Pennsylvania and our governor has done that. And one of the things that I have I have heard, I don't even think it's our school district, but some of the school districts would not allow teachers to interact with students because some students, and it's clearly a very small minority of students, Mm -hmm. would not be able to interact in that same way because of certain disabilities. And so no student should be educated by any teacher because... So they actually end up using this argument and it's just like, wait, what? And like, I understand, you know, a little bit of solidarity and stuff, but like, good grief, like you can't come up with, you can't scramble and come up with an alternative for those kids within a week or two. Yeah, I mean, the the logic of that is that, you know, in, in the name of equity, we're all going to be equally at zero and we're all going to receive zero education because maybe 1% of the population is not able to access a great education at this time. We should, but I mean, the reality is we should provide the best education we can to everybody that we can. We shouldn't provide no education to anyone just because uh, of, of the concern that we might not be able to reach a certain proportion of the population of students. And then I, I'm glad that the Federal Department of Education and Betsy DeVos, I think, blasted states on Twitter who were using the federal disabilities law as an excuse not to serve any children at all. Uh, and they issued guidance saying that IDEA does not mean that you should not serve any students at all. You shouldn't use this as an excuse and you should try to serve every student that you can. And then, I mean, imagine if we applied this logic to the government-run schools today. I don't think anyone could look me straight in the eye and say that all government-run schools are serving all students with special needs at at an adequate rate today. So if we applied that logic, that would mean, oh, I guess we can't educate anyone in government schools either. We might as well Mm -hmm. close all of those down as well because they're not providing an equal education um, to all of their students, you know, regardless of the closure. That would be a ridiculous argument to make. Yeah, you're right. It would be a ridiculous argument to make. I want to ask you, you're using the term government schools as opposed to public schools. And most of the most libertarians that I know uh, will also not, I wouldn't say they all do this, but when they use the word government school, it's more out of a little bit of like, you know, being provocative and sort of being like, all right, Hmm. we're not going to use the word public because, you know, we're economically informed and, you know, it's government controlled anyway and it's mandated. Mm -hmm. Do you actually have a little bit more I would say more reasonable. I mean, those things are reasonable too, but mm-hmm. like you have a very specific reason why you're saying the the phrase government schooling mm-hmm. versus public schooling. And it actually has to do with it. It's not actually public schooling. Could you explain that? Yeah, I say that because I'm right. And it's the most accurate term <laughs> to use. And there's a few reasons for that. One is that we, the government operates our schools. 
um, at the local level. It's still a local government. The government regulates our schools at the local, state, and federal level. The government or taxpayers, whatever you want to call it, funds our schools. And the government, most importantly, compels us to, to send our kids to government schools as well. Uh, so those are all reasons. But then also, I don't like calling them public schools for a couple of reasons as well, because they're not public goods. They are rivalrous and excludable. So based on the economic definition of public goods, they are not public goods. But then also, public schools or government schools are not accessible to all members of the public, like a public park. If you, ha- if you walk by a public park, you can essentially go to that public park and, and, and use it. But with government schools, they're discriminatory based on zip code. If your child does not live in the right place, well, your child's not allowed to attend that school. So public schools or government schools are not accessible to the public, so we should not call them public schools. Uh, And just to reiterate, they're run by the government, they're funded by the government, they're regulated by the government, they're compelled by the government. We should call them government schools. We should call them for what they are. And if people don't like that, and if that upsets people, instead of questioning the facts of the matter and and, and, and trying to uh, avoid the facts of the matter, they should really dig in and, and ask themselves why that fact that the government runs our schools make them, makes them feel so uncomfortable. Well, I'm certainly on board, and I don't know if any of our listeners would not be on board with that sort of way, way of approaching it, but I, I really like the way that you've sort of parsed out all of the reasons. And, you know, to be honest, I hadn't really thought about the whole, like, rivalrous and excludable as part of the definition that disqualifies it from being from being public. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric and argumentation that goes out on social media, and you're like, you know, you elevate the discussion because you actually have facts and you go and prove people wrong and you go right to editors and tell them to retract and it might take them a week, but it, but they do. <laughs> but, you know, and so there's, but there's a lot of information out there and people are making like sort of like mediocre arguments for school choice. They're not making the best arguments. And there's also like anti-school choice people out there making arguments. And, you know, I don't know if you've participated in any like formal debates, but my guess is that those formal debates like sometimes represent like their best arguments against school choice. <laughs> what are some of the best ones that you've heard? And like, how do you address those? Because I mean, some of them are common and really easy, but some of them, you know, maybe we're just like, oh, okay, well, that that's a really good point. But you know, what would Corey DeAngelis say to this really good point that we need? Well, I mean, they don't have any really good points. And that's the problem. That's why <laughs> when you look at my social media account, the debate really quickly delves into ad hominem and name calling. And that's essentially all they have. And that's why I've tweeted many times before that I really feel bad for the other side sometimes because they don't really have anything else. All they really have is name calling and ad hominem and attacking funding sources and attacking people's motives instead of dealing with the facts and the logic of the argument. They don't have any good logical arguments. I mean, you brought up their main argument earlier that the kids who are left behind in the government schools uh, might be worse off. Well, I already, I already tackled that argument. I already tackled the argument about school choice draining funding from the government schools. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll tackle that again just for a second because I didn't, I didn't tackle it fully. But I mean, really, look, if, if you think that your government schools are so great and, and you think that people don't need the option to leave, then, then people won't leave their government schools and, they won't, and those government schools won't lose any funding at all. So, I mean, a lot of people on the other side will say that 
on the one hand, we have great government schools and, and they're so awesome that we don't need any other options. But at the same time, they'll say that you know, school choice will cripple the public education system and defund public schools. Well, you can't say both those things at the same time. I think that what they really believe is that they know that the product that they are delivering is inferior and that families will choose something else. They either think that or the other heart of their argument is that they believe for some reason that low-income families do not have the ability and are, are just not smart enough to be able to choose schools for their own children. And that's an extremely ridiculous, disgusting, and elitist point of view that I don't agree with. But some people will come out and say it out loud that that's the heart of their argument, that they believe that these low-income families are not going to choose the best schools for their kids. Um, so, I mean, these are the two main arguments that are made. Yeah, so let me play devil's advocate for a second. Are you saying that there are there are zero parents out there who are unable to choose correctly for their kids? Of course, I'm not saying that. There is some proportion, <laughs> low proportion of parents who may not have the best interests of their kids and they may not be able to choose the best schools for their kids, but these are few and far between. And when whenever you press opponents um, on this, they never give you a percentage. They never give you uh, any statistics on how on how many families are actually abusive or neglectful of their children. Um, but what I can tell you is that there is a large proportion of failure in the government-run schools today. We shouldn't make perfect the enemy of the good. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the nation's report card, the national the national assessments in the most recent year. Uh, about two-thirds of fourth and eighth grade students are not proficient in reading in the United States. So we we shouldn't pretend like the government schools are doing such a great job, and we shouldn't pretend that there isn't any instances of abuse by government school teachers or other students at the government schools. So we can't, again, we cannot pretend that the, and we should not uh, make perfect the enemy of the good. And that's that's often the times the case uh, in the school choice debate. Yeah, I mean, this this sort of argument is like, well, we're the experts about education and parents, you know, even if they're not being judgmental about the parents they think are unable to choose the right education, mm-hmm. what they're admitting is they're, they're, what they're doing is they're sort of separating parents are unable to in some capacity uh, because they're just not informed, you know, the way we, you know, the way we elites are or whatever. Um, and at the same time, it's usually these kind of people that are like, you know, we just need more people to vote. It doesn't matter if you know anything about the issues of the politicians, but we just need more people to vote. It's like <laughs> it's like they're they're like they're like uh, in favor of epistocracy when it comes to education, but everything else, it's like nope, we need more democracy. <laughs> and it's like duh. Yeah, well, if you if you don't trust these people to pick the correct schools for their children, then how in the heck are they going to be able to pick the right policies at the voting booth <laughs> when they have no incentive to actually? choose the correct policies in the voting booth. I mean, people have a much stronger incentive to get it right when they know that what they choose is what they're actually going going to get. I mean, if I had uh, Brian Kaplan on my podcast a couple uh, or like a week ago, and he talked a little bit about his book, The Myth of the Rational Voter and how it applies to the education system. Mm-hmm. But I will also say that, you know, this argument that some families just aren't informed enough, it's just a nice way of saying that those low-income families just aren't smart enough to make... It's it's the same... It's a light way of putting it. But then also, just think about every other aspect in our lives. I pick my groceries, but I'm not a nutrition expert. I'd pick my car at the car dealership, but I'm not a mechanic and I'm not a car expert. I pick 
every single thing in, in life myself. I, I pick my clothes, but I'm not a fashion expert and I'm allowed to do that. And I'm allowed to make mistakes sometimes when I, when I make poor decisions. So that me not being an expert doesn't mean that I should, that the government should be able to take that liberty away from me. Do you tend to make a sort of utilitarian case when you talk to your opponents? Like, here's how it's effective rather than a like rights perspective? Mm-hmm. What's your, your, do you kind of change it up depending on your audience? Well, I do both because uh, I'm right on, on both of these issues. The evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of when you give people choice, they tend to pick better outcomes. But then also it's just the right thing to do, right? I mean, there's no logical explanation as to why people should be residentially assigned to government-run schools. There's no logical explanation as to why schools need to be run and operated by the government. We can have uh, government-fund schools, but people should still be able to choose uh, privately operated schools if they if they would like and if they think that that's a better option for their children. Uh, and I will say that when I first got into the school choice research, I was mostly heavily focused on the academic side. I did my PhD in education policy at the University of Arkansas, where I did a lot of scientific studies on the effects of school choice programs on test scores, but then also on non-test score, non-academic outcomes, such as criminal activity uh, and teen pregnancy as well, and mental health. And I used to make the utilitarian argument my main argument, but I really think that people don't care about the utilitarian argument as much as the moral argument. So I've shifted actually uh, over the years to making more of the, I'll, I'll do both. I'll back up the moral argument with the facts, but I really think that the moral argument is much more powerful here that there's no reason why people should be residentially assigned to government-run schools and there's no reason why people shouldn't be able to pick their schools. We pick everything else in life and, and people should be able to pick their schools, particularly since we already do allow a lot of people to pick their schools if they have enough money to do so. It's only when low-income families get the power to choose their schools that a lot of groups will start to take issue with the practice. So let's let's jump into some of the libertarian objections to the types of school choice that that libertarians often, you know, kind of argue about. They're one of the one of the most common and and I was kind of convinced of this honestly by Bob Murphy and I know I, I'm pretty sure a few weeks ago you were on his podcast mm-hmm. and you, you he kind of brought this up as well is that well if we have government paying for schools and it just simply the money follows the the child so to speak then what that means is that you'll have, you know, in a, in a world of school choice, you'll have the government sort of dictating to private schools uh, how to run things. And just like there'd be that creep of government oversight into private institutions, mm-hmm. which clearly libertarians would be against. Mm-hmm. But is this one of those like, you know, the perfect is the enemy, the good sort of approaches? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it's not a good argument because our default option is not perfection. It's not that we don't have any government involved in the education system at all. If we didn't have government involved in the education system at all, I probably wouldn't be arguing for universal school voucher programs or universal education savings accounts programs. Um, So this really usually comes from a confusion about the default option. And so people who oppose food stamps will think, oh, well, I, I shouldn't support private school choice because that's kind of like food stamps. But it's completely different because we have over about 90% of kids who are in government-run schools today. And so moving away from that sy- system to a system of more choice with privately-run alternatives is a step in the right direction. 
especially since voucher programs are not regulated at the same amount as fully government-run schools. And obviously, even if you're regulated by the government uh, in a private school, uh, you're not run directly by the government. So as an incremental reform, it's a step in, in the right direction. More people on net should be in a less regulated environment. But then also another piece of this that libertarians should like is that accepting voucher funding is voluntary. If a state enacts a voucher program, no private schools whatsoever are, are compelled to participate in voucher programs. No private schools are forced to accept voucher students unless they voluntarily uh, accept that agreement. And so, I, I mean, I've also done some research on the regulatory impacts of private school choice programs on private schools themselves. And there is some evidence that some regulated private school choice programs uh, lead to more homogenization in the market for private schools. But again, this is voluntary. You'll still have some set of, set of private schools who choose not to uh, participate in the program. But on net, you should lead, this should lead to more students uh, in in less regulated areas and and less students in or fewer students in in completely government run schools. What's your preferred method out of this? I, I think I heard you uh, advocate for educational savings mm-hmm. accounts as sort of like the yeah. easiest way for parents to sort of keep the government's mitts off of what they're doing. Yeah, education savings accounts are the best way to do this. I mean, when Milton Friedman first started talking about this, the whole charade was was about vouchers. Uh, publicly funded voucher, taxpayer funded voucher programs. And I will say for the listeners, if you don't know what an education savings account is, it's similar to a voucher program in that if you opt out of your residentially signed government run school, you can take a fraction of those dollars. And instead of just having to use it at a private school to use for tuition and fees in the form of a voucher, that money goes into a savings account that can be used for government approved education expenditures. So you can use it for private school tuition and fees, but you can also use it for tutoring, textbooks, online learning. And and so you can, it really moves us from school choice to education choice and allows parents to customize the educational environments of their children. But also education savings accounts tend to be less regulated than voucher programs. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One reason is the regulator doesn't know what's causing the difference in outcomes if you're spending the education dollars on various providers of education. With a voucher program, the the regulator can say, oh, well, your test scores went down after you started using the voucher, so now we're going to implement uh, more stringent testing, standardized testing requirements uh, into the voucher program. But, But with an ESA, the government regulator doesn't know whether it's the school that led to the different outcomes, the online learning, the private tutoring that led to the different outcomes. Since there's so many things going on, it makes it extremely difficult for the regulator. And if you look in practice, education savings accounts programs tend to be a lot less regulated than private school voucher programs. And I will say, education savings accounts can also be privately funded in the form of a tax credit scholarship mechanism. Uh, And the way that happens is that individual households and individuals and and corporations can donate to a scholarship granting organization and families can come to that scholarship granting organization and, and apply for those funds. 
and get those private dollars. They're still private dollars because they never entered the tax collector's hands as ruled by the Supreme Court of the United States. These, these tax credit scholarships are still considered private funds. So those tend to be less regulated as well. And I think that's something else that libertarians can, can really get behind and that they should support um, more so even than publicly funded education savings accounts. They can be funded either way, privately or, or publicly funded. If you, if you really still need help wrapping your head around what an education savings account is, um, think of it as universal basic education income. We already have this universal basic spending on education. This just turns it into money that follows the child and to whatever type of educational experience works best for them. I mean, we're already spending the money. Why not allow the families to be able to determine where that money goes? Give us an idea of how much per pupil we're spending. Like, what's the, what's the math here? I can give you the exact amount uh, from the most recent report from the National Center from, for Education Statistics. In 2017, we spent $15,424 per pupil per year uh, in government-run schools in the United States. And so if you multiply that throughout 13 years of a K through 12 education, that's a little over $200,000 per child. Just imagine what, what we could do with that money if we gave it to families to figure out how to best structure the educations of their children. I mean, if you look at the average private school tuition in the most recent year, actually currently in 2020, it's only $11,012. That's 22% less than what we spend in the government-run schools each year. So in theory a parent could take that education savings account or universal basic education income and spend it on private school tuition and and save 22% of the, the of those dollars each year for the student to roll over to put on a down payment a, a, on a house they would come out with you know $52,000 left over that they can use for other expenditures but i will say every single education ex- savings account today if you roll over funds from year to year, you have to use it for education experiences uh, post-secondary. So that could be a college education. Um, or if you don't spend it on college, it goes back to the state education budget. I mean, that doesn't mean it can't be structured in a way to, mm-hmm. to incentivize families to save that over time. But from what we have today, those funds have to be used on government-approved education expenditures. Are there any ways that people advocate for school choice that you find uh, that are pretty inadequate? Like, how do we not argue for school choice? Just give us some, like, you know, pro tip on, like, yeah, don't go down that road when you're arguing school choice because, you know, that's just not a right, that's just not the right way to think about it. Well, there's a lot of issues here. A lot of people will focus too much on standardized test scores and people, that doesn't really amplify or, or get people amped up to go out and support school choice. If you just say, oh, look, the government schools have lower test scores than the private schools. Well, I mean, a lot of people can can argue the evidence and I, I don't feel like I, uh, I, I, I share the evidence, but I don't feel like I convince a lot of people with the evidence because uh, a lot of people will just bring their own types of evidence that confirm their pre-existing biases. So I think the best way to do it is, again, to take the moral argument and to use analogies like I do with food stamps and Pell Grants and pre-K programs and to point out logical inconsistencies on the other side. Another issue is that for too long, school choice proponents have been playing defense, I like to call it. We need to play offense more. The burden of proof for far too long has been on the school choice 
supporters. But the burden of proof should be on the people that are trying to take our rights away or that are trying to keep us from choosing schools freely for our children. The burden of proof should always be on the people who are trying to take away our liberties. And so for a long time, school choice supporters have been trying to prove why we should be able to choose schools for our kids by using scientific evidence on you know, better test scores and, and things like that. But instead, we should flip the conversation around. And I, I, I see that this works a lot better. Instead of defending private schools, we should say, well, what about the government schools? If you're saying that some private schools aren't doing a good job, well, how do you defend the fact that a lot of government schools aren't doing a good job and that a lot of students experience violence in government schools and fighting and bullying and drugs and gang activity? And I, I think we, we need to be able to do that more often and make the other side feel uncomfortable. Because again, for a long time, school choice defenders have almost been apologizing essentially, in a, in, in a way, for advocating for the right for families to be able to choose schools for their own kids. It should be the other way around. So one of the most recent things that that is probably, probably not going to go away, um, so this is very timely on the one hand, but like this is just an outrageous thing, um, and is this new Harvard Harvard study, I say that in scare quotes, on the risks, or I think it was like a, a seminar or webinar or something, on the risks of homeschooling. <laughs> and the most outrageous part was that, that people would say that like kids don't belong to their parents, they belong to the community. And like the best way for me to spin that in their favor is that they're using the word belong in a different way. Like they're not saying that parents don't have you know, responsibility or that like, you know, that the kids are not just the parents, like mm. kids affect us all and so forth. But I, I, that doesn't even really seem to muster a good reason for them to believe what they believe. But because we're all homeschoolers now, Corey, like we're all at home. Mm-hmm. However, we're doing school, it's being done at home. Yep. And I think they're all freaking out. Um, and I think you're you're pulling the veil so that people can can see that. It's like, what, what's going on here? Yeah, I do think they're freaking out because we're all homeschoolers now and there's going to be a significant significant proportion of um or at least number not proportion but a significant number of families who figure out that look our government schools aren't really teaching our kids much of anything and that I can get everything that they were doing in the government schools done in a fraction of the time and my kids are actually learning more now uh, i've seen reports of families saying that their kids are less anxious and just doing a lot better. They're happier. So I do think that the other side is kind of freaking out because think of it this way. If even only 2% of the families who weren't homeschooling before choose to continue homeschooling, that's a million children switching into the homeschooling environment. And that's a huge relative proportion of homeschoolers. And that could push families to push for things like education savings accounts uh, because they may sit back and realize that, well, why is the government school still getting my money for my child when they are no longer educating my children? Shouldn't I get that $15,000 check to educate my own children at home? And I think the other side is realizing that this is clicking for a lot of families. And yes, I mean, Harvard's holding an anti-homeschooling conference. It's explicitly anti-homeschooling, where they say that they're going to, their own event description uh, explicitly says that they're going to focus on things like child educational uh, malpractice and edu- and child abuse and child maltreatment at their conference. And they never talk about all of those things that are going on in the government schools, about all the um, abuse going on in government schools and lack of learning going on in government schools. So this conference is one-sided. 
I mean, the the views of Harvard Law School professor Elizabeth Bartholet that are that are highlighted in that Harvard Magazine article are just completely ridiculous. What she wants to call for is a presumptive ban on homeschooling, which essentially means that she's going to she wants to put the burden of proof on all families who want to homeschool uh, to be able to make a case to the government as to why they should be able to educate their own children at home. Which, in a sense, um, uh, if you think about it is a belief that inherent belief that the government that our children belong to the government rather than their parents and a co-organizer of the Harvard Law School conference along with Elizabeth Bartlett James Dwyer another professor organized this conference and he is famous for for saying and I quote the reason that parent child relationships exist is because the state confers legal parenthood you're only a parent, essentially, because the state allows you to be a parent, is what he's essentially saying. And he further claims that, and I quote, it's the state that is empowering parents to do anything with children. Again, it, it, and this is along the sentiment that, you know, they're not your children, it's the government's children. Yeah, so even me playing like, you know, best positive spin on that title. This is not even remotely the case for what they're what they're doing. Oh my goodness. Uh yeah, like that that should be outrageous to any parent. Like it's 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 just pretty ridiculous. So uh before we wrap up, I have I have one final question. It's gonna be kind of like two parts. Like what is there any is there, are there any movements in the United States where there is positive, really kind of aggressive positive direction with respect to school choice and where are those spots? And then like, are there other, are there certain states that are just terrible or really great for school choice? You can kind of give us like mm-hmm. a report card a little bit here. Yeah, I will point uh, listeners to something if you just Google EdChoice Share. So the think tank called EdChoice, it used to be called the Friedman Foundation of Educational Choice. It's just, it's now called EdChoice. If you look up EdChoice Share, like percentage, they have a little graphic where they rank all the states online by the states who have that have most students enrolled in some type of school choice program that either being a charter school or a private school voucher program or an education savings account. And they find that Arizona is the is the state that we should be looking at. They have the highest ed choice share percent of students who are in, you know using these types of programs. And right behind them is Florida. Florida is also doing really well with the percent of students who have access to these types of programs. For In Florida, for example, they have a private school voucher program. It's actually a tax credit scholarship program that's privately funded. And I think around 108,000 students are using this program in Florida. In Arizona, in just the charter sector alone, I think about 19 or 20% of students are attending public charter schools in Arizona. So these are the states we should be looking at. Florida also has a cool program called the Hope Scholarship Program. And that is available to fa- to families of students who were bullied in their public schools or their government schools. And I don't think it requires a lot of proof. I think there needs to be a report done. But essentially, they they have essentially a universal school choice program in Florida. There's only about 300 students that are using it right now, but there's a potential opportunity for school choice to become extremely widespread in Florida if more families start to use this particular program because it's not targeted based on income or special need like a lot of the other programs are. It's just targeted based on, well, did you feel like you were bullied in the public school? And so essentially, um, 
essentially everyone is is eligible for that program. So I think more states should follow Florida's lead. I think that's the only uh, anti-bullying you know bullying program uh, in the form of school choice that's available in the United States at all. So Corey, thank you for joining us for this episode. I, you know, as I said earlier, like you're you're clearly a force to be reckoned with because you have all the facts, and I'll probably listen to this episode another time just to like soak in all the facts. Um, you have a podcast. Is there is there a specific name for your podcast? Because I know if our listeners love to listen to more podcasts, so go ahead and promote anything online that you you need to for people to reach out to you. Yeah, I have. Well, first please follow me on Twitter. It's at DeAngelis Corey. It's just my last name and my first name. I have two podcasts at the moment. One is the Educational Freedom Institute podcast that I co-host with Matthew Nielsen. It's called uh, In Conversation. Uh, If you could just Google Educational Freedom Institute podcast and you'll find it. And I have another one that I just started with Bob Bowden from Choice Media TV. And we call that Random Assignment. It's another school choice podcast. But if you want to look it up, it's just a hashtag random assignment podcast, and you'll be able to find that there. I also have a book co-edited with uh, Neil McCluskey that's coming out on all of these different school choice myths that are in the debate, and we tackle 12 of them in that book with, with renowned experts from across, across the country. That'll be coming out in October of this year, but it's already up on Amazon for pre-order. Again, if you just Google school choice myths, uh, Corey DeAngelis, You'll find you'll find the book on Amazon. It's only twenty four ninety five as well, and it's well worth uh, arming yourself with facts and logic against the government school defenders on all of the ridiculous arguments that they make against, or all the arguments that they make as to why they should be able to prevent us from choosing schools for their, for our own kids. Awesome. Well, thank you. I'll be looking forward to that book. We'll we'll promote it and uh, we'll put it on the show notes page. All the things that you just said, in case people weren't writing it down. Thanks again, Corey. Cool. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners, since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calledtofreedombook.com.